15 of the Board Game Gambit podcast. What will your legacy be? Today we're talking about legacy games. And joining you as always is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Welcome, everyone. So how are you? Good. A little tired. Not only because we are recording in the wee hours of the morning, uh, but (laughs) (laughs) in general, things are picking up again. The new semester is looming, and I don't even know if I will be doing it in person or remotely. So I have been playing a little fewer games than, than usual, but we have an upcoming gaming weekend, so I hope to, to make up for that a little bit. What about you? I had a board game day on Monday with my friend who also has the day off on Monday. So uh, we got to play Coloma. Mm. I played it at two players with the Buster variant. It's a simultaneous action selection game where you are going to different areas and trying to build different things, collect resources, travel around and create settlements, all these different little things that eventually will get you points at the end. Oh, and fight the outlaws. I forgot about the outlaws. Those are fun. So there's all these different little things that you can do during the game. But each action space has a possible two actions that you can benefit from. So if you go there, you can get both the regular action and this bonus action, which is called the boom action. The boom action, you're only allowed to take it if... If you're alone. No, not if you're alone, but if you're the at the spot that ha- does not have the most. The place that has the most people on it, the boom action gets covered up. I love the little components. It's It may sound like so basic and just simple, but you know how like other games where you have like a wheel or something in the center, you have those little things that you connect together on both sides of it mm-hmm. that like lock it into place. So this doesn't have that. Instead, it uses magnets. Nice. It's so cool. Like... It's something so simple and so little, but like it's so satisfying to like put it on the board and hear it like click into place from the magnet. And then so it's two different layers. It's the the regular spinner and then the little cover up boom action one on top of it. They are little stacked magnets. It's so satisfying for some reason. Yeah, it was a game that actually we got the full explanation for at PAX unplugged last year but then we decided we couldn't play it right then and there because it was like late at night Mm -hmm. so the next day we decided well we could play that but we need to find the copy and we know that we like what we heard let's play something else and learn something new which i think ended up being runestones which i don't didn't particularly enjoy (laughs) it went on our on our list and i almost bought it the other day because as you mentioned the first time to me it pops up from time to time there is like three copies available here two copies available there i'm not sure what the distribution model is because it's not in oh it's out of print everywhere but it's not definitely in sure it's in general distribution so i don't know if a new one is trickling in or what i are doing but anyhow I almost bought it, and then you had told me that you bought it, and so I was like, well, at this point, I can actually try the game. (laughs) I know that it also exists in a deluxe version, but I remember thinking that even the basic version looked very, very nice. Yeah, I wish I had the deluxe version. I made you sad. Okay, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the deluxe version adds gold nuggets that were like Mm -hmm. made specifically for the game it like knowing that there could be gold nuggets 
and you're putting out these little yellow cubes is so sad. Uh, that's easy. You buy a $50 or whatever special, what is called, treasure chest by Stonemeyer, and you're good. <laughs> I uh, went and online I found little things that you put in vases for like flowers and stuff. So I bought those. And so we'll see how those work. What you should do is you should just go online buy the deluxe kickstarter version for 80 dollars, mm-hmm. which is right now in stock where on i won't tell you because i i need to lure you in my in my plan <laughs> i will buy the other one for you from it's on time well spent no if you click onto it it's not there oh they they are lying to me they are okay i've been looking <laughs> well it's good because it didn't sound like it was worth 40 dollars for gold nuggets gold nuggets it has clays for the coins and then it has oh it has a metal sheriff badge first player marker so obviously yeah, you need it that i could go without i'm normally not a big i never looked into the the lux treasure resources from Stonemeyer. Mm-hmm. but since it includes both gold and clay you could you could look into that and then use the rest to upgrade some other game i'll have to check it out so you were saying that you played with the with a variant because that was my other curiosity since it's based on trying not to match other people's actions basically how does that work with two i actually liked it so there's two different variants one is you can play with these little like donkey meeples you have little carrots and donkeys and you choose where the donkey goes but if you go somewhere where someone else is to bust them you don't get that second action but if you go somewhere else then you get the action so it's that one was very low luck very strategy heavy we didn't actually play with that version i just read about it after we finished the other game The version we did do was called the Buster variant, which is this like little additional worker who just basically goes to a spot to mess up your plans. So it it is simultaneous action. So you turn the dial, you resolve an event, and then everyone does simultaneous action selection on a little wheel. But before that, in between there, in between the action and when you make your selection, there's a deck of five cards and you reveal two of them. So you know two spots where this extra meeple is not going to be. Mm-hmm. And you make your selection, everyone reveals, and then you flip over the card where the meeple is going to go. So sometimes it felt a little unfair because it was a little bit of randomness, but it f- didn't feel overwhelmingly random because you did get a little bit of information in the beginning. And I feel like it really tried to emulate a third player because with normal people, you know what things people are going for in general, but you never really know what they're going to go for. Like, say this person doesn't have enough resources to go to this specific action. They're probably not going to go there. So you would know that. But the other options, you have no idea. Like, maybe this person really thinks that this action is important this turn. So they could go there. And you might not even realize that that's something that they would want to be doing. So I feel like it really, because it gave you that little bit of information, if it had been completely random, I wouldn't have liked it. But the fact that it gave you a little bit of information in the beginning, I thought was really smart. And also, I feel, again, I haven't played the game, but I feel that when you play with, say, what is five player the maximum? Yes. Something like that. Yes. Sure, you can try and double guess and read some people's mind but at some point with five players it will often be the case where 
you just happen to bump on on someone else and therefore get your your action reduced or whatever not get the bonus so i think you have to to be able to plan for what is technically not random because obviously people choose what action to take but in the end i feel when you're playing with five players you have to to get ready for the well, what do I do if someone goes there, right? Not necessarily be able to d- determine what everyone is doing. So right. that seems to be a good approximation of the experience. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. We played it. I I underestimated how long it would take me to teach someone it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we started it a little later than I would have liked, and it took almost two hours with like teach and and he didn't know anything about the game at all. Mm-hmm. So from like n- nothing to full teach to playthrough was about two hours. So that wasn't too bad. We we were a little confused in the beginning as to what we were trying to actually do. And then once we got the hang of it, I realized that I was like a step behind every time. I was like, oh, I want to do this. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, that was just covered by this action. I can't do that. I'm like, no. So it was really good. I'm really excited to play it again. I'll have to bring it this weekend. Absolutely that. And I still want to try Chrono Corsair. Okay, I will bring them both. While I learned Castell, but we haven't played it yet. So Castell is a game, I don't remember by whom, uh, with a (laughs) very nice theme because you are traveling through Catalonia and collecting acrobats to build your human pyramid. Okay. And it's a Euro, absolutely Euro, and quite involved from what I remember when I played it once. And you build the pyramid with tiles, obviously not vertically, it's not a dexterity game. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that how you build it, it's part of the game. You are trying to make certain combinations happen, but there is no a strong spatial element. You're not trying to fit the pieces, so that's why I like it. But it's strange because the theme is so fanciful and light. It has all of these pastel colors, but I remember it being quite involved. I mean, again, I played it once when it came out and it's not super new, so I might be wrong and misremembering, but I I really look forward to trying it again and seeing if I remember right. And it was really fun and quite fast for Euro, so I would like to, to, to check it out. But what instead I did get to play was Cold Baron which I hadn't played in a while. Cold Baron, which came out in 2013, I want to say, that year was my favorite game from that year, I think. It's a game by uh, Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer, which they are a design duo that has done a bunch of stuff, none of which had previously been up in my preference. They normally do quite abstract stuff. Kisling did uh, Azul, but he also did Tikal and all of that. This one was different in that it's quite a Euro, so not in the traditional abstract way of his, but also that it comes with a major component of theme. (laughs) In Cold Baron, you are mining different qualities of coals to complete different contracts and send them away via different ways of transportation, basically. And all of that is achieved through an accumulating worker placement mechanism. I don't know how to call it. Basically, 
it's a non-exclusive worker placement. If I go to a place, you can go to the same place. You just have to pay one more worker. So you have something like 13 to 15, depending on number of players, workers per players per round, and you play to three rounds. So it's a lot of, I want to go there before you, not because otherwise you shut me off, but because otherwise it will be more expensive. So it's like an action point worker placement where it has you have a set number of actions and you can spread them out however you want, but it's not exclusive, like you said, yeah. Exactly. So it's technically not what I consider a worker placement because as you were saying, if you can still do it, for me, it's not a worker placement. It's But it's not a pure action selection either because the cost is not fixed. And so it's first, it's to me innovative. I'm sure it's not unique, but to me, it was quite innovative when I played it. And it went not completely unnoticed, but I strongly believe it's, if not the among the best games from 2013. And I heard not a peep from about it. And when I got it, I was super happy. We got it at a convention, got it in a tournament. It was very nice. And I love it. It as for a Euro in particular, but in general, it is very interactive, not only because of this. I know that both Nathan and I will need that spot, so I need to maneuver so that I can get there first and spend just one worker. And so, for example, when you choose what mode of transportation to use, if I want to send my stuff via train and you also have train contracts, I will try to complete my train contracts first in order to send them away. But also the scoring is dual you score when you complete contracts but also at the end of each round you check for majorities of certain things completed contracts uh, of a certain color completed contracts with a certain transportation mode excavated parts of your mind but all of that is comparative so the first player will get something and the second player will get something else and so you are constantly trying to keep an eye on what other people are doing because most of the points, most of the points where you can actually make a difference come from these things because contracts as it is often in this game is, oh, the resource that is harder to acquire will will more points from the contract. So sure, you are technically doing a lot of points from the contracts, but those tend to average out. So what you get a lot from is maneuvering so that you have majority in something or you are second without investing a lot of resources in something else. And I love it. It was a very intense game because for some reason we all needed, we all went for one type of contract called three players rather than usually distributing that everyone needs two. And so there was a lot of direct competition even more. It's great. It came with Orendo's paper money. Not just paper money, which I'm not, I don't hate like most people. I don't like it, but I don't hate it with a passion. But those were particularly bad. They were all the same color for all the the values and very, very thin. But when Olean came and we have the version with the metal coins, so we use those coins here and they work very fine. And the game is fun. Have you played it? Yeah, I like it a lot. Do you prefer this or the card game i prefer this although i like the card game a lot and i realize that i basically never play it because (laughs) it's a card game that contrary to other situation i mentioned before that i generally don't like the 
this the card game or this the dice game i actually liked it quite a bit but it's not particularly simple like now if i had to play it i would have to go through the rules again to make sure and if i had to teach it to someone and so at the point that point i end up using Cold Baron because it's not a game I play every day. I like it so much to the point that I'm always conflicted. It's like, this should really go. We never play this, but I really like the card game. So I... I, I still own it. I don't know. It was also very cheap when when I bought it. It's one of those games that I think unfairly, but went grossly overproduced. And so for a while it was showing up, not Cold Baron, Cold Baron, the card game for like $6 and things like that oh, around really? the internet. Yeah. And I don't think that that's necessarily a reflection of, of the value of the game. No, no, no. I mean, Aquasphere, which as you know, I door went through the same thing at some point the same they couldn't get rid of it so and then when i wanted to buy my copy it wasn't very cheap well that's because i wait uh, to introduce to you games until they're very expensive and out of print <laughs> yeah i know i know i appreciate it oh yeah i never mentioned them but i have a stock of games that i think you would like that are hidden <laughs> somewhere and i check the prices and oh this is now a gold gold safe safe uh, material <laughs> And so now I can teach it to Nathan. Yeah. It's, it's a technique. <laughs> You're stimulating the economy. Yeah, I'm sponsored by the Fed. <laughs> Federal Reserve. I realize that I like quite a bit some of their collaborative works. Like what? I backed Maharaja on Kickstarter, the new version. But have you played it? No. So that doesn't count like liking it. it counts like buying it. Okay, fine. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I, um, I've played Porta Nigra, and I like yeah. I like that game a lot. Actually, the one I've only played it once, but I I really enjoyed the play that we had of it. I know you like Sealand. Oh yeah, I didn't realize it was theirs. Yes, I like Sealand. Although Sealand is in a different category for me. It's a game that I like to own because it's very different. It's very original, both in theme. You are building mills in, I don't know, 17th century Holland, but it's very connected to the fact that you're expanding with your meals in, in, in the marshes. But it's not. Cold Baron is among my top games. I really, really like it. Another one that I like of theirs is Adventureland, oh, which yeah? was, again, different, inno innovative. But for me, I played it enough. Like, I played it, I think, five times. And it was, I like it but it doesn't stimulate me enough. No, I actually played it three times and I felt that. So that's not a great sign. <laughs> no. But yeah, I don't know. Potanigra for me was really, really okay. Maraja, I looked at it. I didn't want it. Oh, the Palace of Carrara was, was nice. That one I liked. It had some very strange mechanism with how you acquire resources from a rondelle. It wasn't a rondelle. It was... Ha, let's see what, what he says here. He doesn't describe it, but there is this basically spinning wheel that constantly changes your options in terms of what cubes you can get. Mm -hmm. That was neat, but the rest of the game was very straightforward. Buy stuff with resources and build buildings in different cities, things like that. So I think they are a duo that when they stay away from, oh, this is another Azul or whatever, which I don't like because I don't particularly enjoy 
abstracts, but that I will take notice. They always seem to have something cool, yeah. uh, some cool element, which sometimes ends up in, well, that element was cool, but I don't care for the game, and some other times really clicks. I really want to try Downforce, which I have heard great, great things about. They were, I think, at the forefront of the old German Euro that basically kick-started BGG. The Princes of Florence is by Kramer. El Grande is by Kramer. Tikal, all of those classic heroes that to me do feel a little dated today, mm-hmm. which I know is blasphemy to some people, but so. Another game I played was Kalimala. Have you heard of it? It was one of those games that, like how you're describing, that's what made me think of it, is that, so it had a very interesting mechanism, but the rest of the game was just like, okay. Oh, I have played this. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I see what you mean. I had more or less the same experience, but I think even the mechanism was, contrary to those in Kramer and Kisling, new for the sake of new. Yeah. Not necessarily new, but then you didn't manage to make a game out of it. Actually, the, the game itself was fine. How did you like the main mechanism? It gave us a setup for our first game instead of it being random. So it felt annoying. <laughs> They put things next to each other that didn't really go together Mm -hmm. on purpose to make it so that you had to go like all over the board or whatever, picking different actions. For those who don't know Kalimala, it's a game where you're doing action selection and it's a nine grid, three by three. And in between each of the actions, up and down and left and right, there's a spot to put a disc. And you put a disc there and then you take the action both on the left and on the right. The interesting part about it was, though, if someone comes after you and puts their disc on top of yours, they take their action first, then you get to resolve the actions as well. So it sort of stacked on top of each other. And then you had special white discs that you could put there instead, which gave you an immediate double action, but no future actions if someone went there. So there was a lot of contention for certain spaces because people would go there and then they would just keep going there with their own discs and then they would push their disc. When you stacked up to four, the the disc on the bottom would go to this other area and be used later for majorities and it would trigger a scoring event also. So I was very... I was like, this game is terrible when we were playing it. I don't think that it's terrible. The, after thinking on it for a little bit, I, I enjoyed it. I thought that the mechanism was good, but the rest of the game just felt like majority is the game. Yes, but also I have two big issues with this game. Well, three if you consider graphic design. But <laughs> So the first one is we played it. I didn't play two players. Maybe with two players it's a little better, but it felt that often... You need two actions. Player A is on action one and player B is on action two. And you choose one of the two and you go there. And by doing that, you are giving someone another set of actions. And you could do either or. And that determines how other players play their game. And so it seems like there is a lot of involuntary, constant rebalancing and giving stuff out to people that can be frustrating if you are, like, I think we played it with four. And I remember one player never getting their thing, but I didn't get the impression of, 
oh well they should have tried and and gone for the better action was just that it happened like that and the other thing is that it's a majority game where certain majorities get scored and then they don't matter anymore because each each cube contributes to different majorities but i remember that there were some spaces where midway through the game we were like well we don't care about that we don't care about that and so it was ga- a game that became less interesting rather than ramping up which for me Great. it's a big big strike yeah i would i would play it again but i would never i would never volunteer this as an option to be played well that's good because i don't risk having to tell you no <laughs> well i also don't own it so well that that That's doesn't mean much you could own it <laughs> soon just because it's a game that exists the designer is fabio lopiano <laughs> and the artist i won't mention him first because i don't know how to pronounce him uh and then because i didn't like the game uh the, the look of the game who <laughs> did also ragusa fabio lopiano i mean which looked interesting it was on kickstarter a couple of years ago and is now available around it's getting discounted often that actually had a very good looking innovative mechanism with when you pl- similarly when you place adjacent to someone who has already placed they get something but i read reviews that say that determines a big problem in again where do you go you need to help someone else and is not necessarily connected to what they are doing and second that player order became super important but yeah, it does look very nice. Yeah, it was deal of the day on, I don't know if Game Nerds or something else, a couple of days ago. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> I didn't get it. So yeah, I think we should talk about our in-depth game, which has nothing to do with legacy games. That's good. <laughs> our game of the day is Potato Man. Potato Man is a trick-taking card game by Gunter Burkhard and Wolfgang Lehmann from Zach Zumspielen. Was that okay? <laughs> I imagine. What What did you find as the publisher? Zach Zumspielen. It says Zach Verlach in on BGG, but whatever i have i have my box i'm looking at i think zock is the editor and zoom spielen is something like to play or i don't know <laughs> anyhow potato man has the distinction of being the only game that i actively tracked down on bgg and i know that that's been the case for a few people because that's how it was available someone brought the box of it to the us because they like it so much and they were selling it for basically $10 shipped. So definitely not a money-making scheme. And I I know we bought it from a friend who had bought... I mean, we tried it from a friend who had bought it like this. So it's a game that generally didn't get a lot of attention, but that I do find extremely charming. So it's a trick-taking game, which I normally am not a big fan of. So I don't shy away from them, but I didn't grow up with trick-taking games. I'm not a big trick-taking game aficionado outside of hobby games. But the way it works is you have your standard four suits, although the four suits don't max at the same number, like yellows go to 13, green to 14, blue to 16, and red to 18. And it's meant to be played with four players. 
like most traditional trick-taking games are, I guess. And the player who leads chooses a color, and contrary to most other trick-taking games, you don't not only you don't need to follow, but you cannot follow. Each player must play a different color to the point that if that's impossible, that's what determines the ends of the end of the round, and you play usually a number of rounds equal to the number of players. Each round is composed of many different hands, but it ends when this each one plays a different color, it's impossible. And you're trying to have the highest card, but there are two things that are interesting. One is that while certain colors win more easily, winning with them is worth less because red will net you one point if you win using a red card, blue two, green three, yellow four. And for each of these, there is a stack of three, I think, and if they run out, they are then worth five. There is a what you're winning with and when, which matters, and then the titular Potato Man, which is basically a superhero. So the three highest cards in the game, the red, 16, 17, and 18, are evil potatoes. They hold a potato peeler, (laughs) which is obviously clearly evil in a world populated by anthropomorphic potatoes. But if someone plays that, and someone else can play the weakest number of the yellows, the one, two, and three, those are Potato Man, and you get to win that hand, assuming that hand can be completed. And so it has these two pulls that make what is, in playing terms, a very simple player card, the highest card wins, very interesting, because you're trying to draw out other players' card. I think that's, in terms of rules, that's all, right? There's not much else. Mm-hmm. The only thing is, if you run out of, so if you keep winning with red, and then the three that are taken, those three scoring cards that are one point each are taken, and you move on to the gold, the gold are five points, like you said, but if you run out of the gold, then you get nothing, which I don't think has ever happened in a game that we've played. So if you win, 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 with one suit, then eventually you'll get nothing instead of even a single point. Yes, and that means that often, more than trying to win a lot of hands, you're trying to make sure that whoever wins the hand wins with little points. Since you play four rounds, theoretically, and endgame scores, I would say, they are the winning scores are around 20, they could be 18, 24, depending on how how long the rounds go because it's a variable length. But I think what makes that go is that sometimes is okay, I can try and win this for a point, but if I play it wrong, someone else is getting three or four or five points. So I rather seed the point, let the next player play something and win with a red or a blue to avoid someone else maybe winning with a green or a yellow. The risk being, though, that if you misplay that and that player has a low red card, which is unlikely because red cards are shifted higher. They start with 5 and they go to 18 instead of 1 to 13 for yellow, for example. But if you count on someone and so someone plays blue and you play a green thinking, okay, so this person can play a red and the last person cannot take it with, with yellow and the player plays a 10 red because that's the highest they have, and maybe they don't have yellow in their hand, someone else is going to score the full four points for yellow. And so that's tricky. I really, really, really enjoy this game. I Have Have you ever played it with any player count other than four? Yes, I've played it with both three and five. With three players, it's fine. We have so many games that I'd rather play something that works well at three. But when, for example, with my mother or my sister... 
if they really like that game and they go like, I want to play the potato game again, it's fine <laughs> with three. You remove green, so you have the same experience, just a little less expanded. Okay. It works exactly the same. You have only three colors, so the three players need to play the three colors. There is a little less of that. Well, okay, if I play this and D plays that, then the last person will play this. It's a little less multi-layered, but Mm -hmm. it still somehow works. With five, it gets into four colors will be played and one will be doubled. But since it doesn't need to be one, two, three, four, and then the fifth player doubles up is anyone can double up once. It gets really so not predictable that it feels like having the right card at the right moment is way more important than in the basic game. And I realized that my my rating of Potato Man needs to be updated because it's for some reason low. It might be a mistake. It might be that I didn't realize how good it was uh, early on. But it's weird because we bought it right away. <laughs> but I find it extremely interesting. There is also a mechanism like many trick-taking game where whoever wins the the hand starts the next hand. But being last in this one is incredibly important because first, you see what's there. And second, because if you play a card that is of the same number as another one, the later you play, the higher the value. So if you play a 10 and I play a 10 after you, I'm now winning the hand, which especially when you push the limit, you can know that you you can beat someone else or something like that. So often there is a, okay, Nathan plays after me. If he has the 13 or 14 of green, he can get a big, big points. And I usually do. Okay, sure. Fair enough. <laughs> this is a very, very strong game for you. And I like that trying to position. So, okay, not only I'm willing to sacrifice a point to avoid, I rather... Jim having a point and Lydia having two, but also Jim is playing right after me, which means if he starts the new hand, I will get the the closing play on the next hand and maybe I can score big points. Because often the first player plays a dead card because you even if you have very strong cards, you don't necessarily want to play them on the opening hand because the strong cards are those big reds that can trigger Potato Man. So if you play a big red, you're basically giving someone the options of winning the hand with the low yellow, which would net them a lot of points. And so you could start with blue, but the highest blue card is beaten by the red cards. And so at that point you go, do I really want to use my powerful blue card? And if someone has a powerful red card, it was just wasted. So often the first player will play a throwaway card. So that at that point, the other three players are fighting for winning the hand. And that makes it even more important not to be first. So there is a lot to like. I think it's a very deep game for how simple it is. It's a deck of 52 cards, I think, or something like that. Yeah, I like that you know the different suits, the the values, the possible values of the different suits. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that adds a ton of strategy into the game just knowing that these have a specific value and then trying to remember like what everybody's played so far you know are there still potato mans left are there still evil potatoes left it becomes this really intense game for how like you said it's it's literally just cards and but it's so good i've never played a game where different suits have different values but i was trying to think of one this is pretty cool yeah i don't 
think either but i i'm don't play a lot of trick-taking games so that doesn't mean much yeah there are a lot of little things for example trying to fish out okay he played a 12 yellow out of 13 which means he probably doesn't have low yellows or vice versa oh he could have won that hand with the 12 green now i know that he doesn't have those those greens and so there is a lot of trying to force other people to play their high or highish cards for green and yellow which are the ones that yield the most points but don't have very high cards because if someone is forced to play them when they cannot win the hand that one is gone and now you can focus on uh, fishing out other cards from other players and as you mentioned as we mentioned before trying to guess okay did he play a big evil potato because he knows that no one else can play the potato man because he has them in the, in his hand <laughs> or are they playing that hoping that no one else has it and there is a lot of that and i think that the theme helps a little bit even if it's almost immaterial the only thing is when you play the the low yellows but it's it's cute to look at these anthropomorphic potatoes like the blue is an old man, uh, green is the sexy young potato, which is a little <laughs> disturbing, also because of stereotypes and all of that. But even just, it's a potato. Come on! And I, but I really like the art on the evil potato and on Potato Man himself, uh, who flies. So I would like to go on an, on a limb here and say that we are the first podcast ever to use the phrase sexy potato. I, I would just like to, you know, I don't think that there's a lot of competition for that, but I feel like... We're making history, yeah. Yes. <laughs> history is made by pointing out sexualization of potatoes. <laughs> I, I did my part. I can rest the sleep of the just tonight yes that game like most games that jackie introduces me to is not available <laughs> there are two copies at noble knight games which is a site that i sometimes use but that's the only place that i was able to find it i'm sponsored by them oh we're not sponsored by them but okay it's it's <laughs> i want to be sponsored by them at least for your for your buys <laughs> But it's only like 13 bucks, so it's not it's not very expensive. And if you don't own this, I would get it. If you like trick-taking games, even mildly, this is probably the best trick-taking game I've ever played. So I, I think it's a great game. I can't say enough good things about it. And that was Potato Man from Zakazum Spielen Games. Can I ask, how do I get flack for suggesting a game that is available for 13 bucks? Um, okay, but what if two people buy it and then then it's gone? Then it's their fault. Actually, <laughs> it's the person who told them where to buy it's fault. Oh, no. I, I mean, although I think it was distributed in Germany for, what, $5? So it's a 200 and. 50% price so it's as if a regular euro went for 170 so I do see the the potential conflict there so why don't we head on over to our topic of the day which is legacy games oh but briefly before I wanted to mention that I have done my homework great I played Teotihuacan Teotihuacan is that part However, of your homework 
It was the homework. Yes, it was the doing Teotihuacan, the solo version. So, But not learning how to pronounce it. Correct. That wasn't part of the homework. Okay. <laughs> Something that I found online, which was very cool, is a website. It's called Full Stack Cardboard. And on this website, they have little interfaces that you can interact with to represent the solo player. So even though the solo player, the book lays it out very clearly that you're um, moving around these different tiles, you're rolling dice, you're looking and seeing which action they're taking, and then it lists all the different things that they have to do. They're all these if-then statements mm-hmm. just to run it like a like a little program. The interface on this website m- makes it very, very clear. So it's it was very easy to do. I had started with it just using the just using like the rule book and and everything. And then I was like, this is really overwhelming because I had forgotten how to play Teotihuacan. And then on top of that, adding that I had to figure out how to use the bot. So it was a lot. So this website really helped me out. I would highly recommend it. It has lots of different games, actually. Well, not lots. It has 10, but I mean, 10 is more than what I could make, so. Yeah, in general, I think that having some kind of support so that you can focus simply on moving your stuff and almost automatize the automa (laughs) is useful. I think that when I tried um, the site solo game, Mm -hmm. which was fine, nothing. (laughs) I know people rave about it. I found it fine. Anyhow, but to use it, they came out with the sidekick or something like that app, which basically simulates the deck and tells you, okay, do this and that. And I think those are very helpful indeed. Yeah, I played it. Uh, That is by Daniele Tashini, and uh, the solo game was by David Tersi. Did you win? Yes, I did win. Not by very much, though. (laughs) Doesn't matter. We'll take one over our (laughs) hardboard overlords. Yes. So... So I played it. It is good. And so I ended up getting the expansions. <laughs> that was my justification for getting the expansions. So I just wanted to sure. throw that out there. I'm glad that you rewarded yourself after your homework. Yeah. That's very important. Yeah. Okay. So back to legacy games. <laughs> yes. So I feel like legacy games were sort of born out of the combined interest of tabletop games and role-playing games because it has this thing, legacy has this thing where you can sort of create a character and and bring them along, which has been around in role-playing games for as long as role-playing games have been around. Different campaigns where you would go and create a character and you would just make this person and you would do little changes to them and the changes would carry over that really laid the groundwork for legacy games because i feel like legacy games are a relatively newer idea unless you can think of older games no absolutely i do agree that they are new i'm also looking at the list and the first one was basically risk legacy in 2011 but then there was nothing for another (laughs) six years (laughs) they're like this was this was a bad idea Well, it was also, how can we use that? The one thing that I am perplexed is, how do you differentiate a legacy game from, say, a game like Descent, which has 
campaigns and you play through the campaign, you have your character that grows in power, acquires new skills and new cards, and the campaign can take nine games and therefore 25 hours of play, but then you can just reset it. So for me, I think campaign games are definitely more where you're just changing a character or you're changing like your equipment, things like that. Legacy games are, to me at least, are where you're changing a rule of something. You are completely affecting the board so that the game, the game state itself is different. So that's what I feel is the difference. Okay. And you're definitely 100% correct that there are new wish because there are 50 total listed on BGG, mm-hmm. of which a good 15 are unpublished yet, and another good 10 or more are additional components for something. So there are probably less than 25 legit. These are now games that you can just go out and buy, and these are games that use the legacy mechanic. And I think that you point to a very good element that interests me a lot. So what is normally the focus of people when they talk about legacy is the physical transformation. The, oh, you have stickers and you rip up out cards and you open boxes and all of that. And that's certainly exciting if you like it or a little troubling <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> And there is something to be said about a game that you can only play through once, no matter how many games it takes to do it. But I do think that the reason we wanted to talk about legacy games and what actually is the the fascination with it is, as you were saying, how the rules evolve and change permanently throughout the campaign. And the changes that you introduce, even if they were not hard in the oddly engraved on the cards and on the physical uh, representation of the game, they change your gaming experience. And now there is this new rule that is there to stay. And I think that that's way more interesting in terms of discussing the design of legacy games than the, sure, in one game you apply stickers and in another one you rip the cards, which it's certainly noticeable, but I don't think anyone has ever bought a legacy game because they said, mm, I really wanted to trash some cards and I didn't have any paper lying around. Yeah. So I don't have top legacy games. What I did was I made a list of some pros and cons of legacy games just because, first of all, I hadn't realized that there were so few because there was one year at Gen Con where I felt like everyone had released a, a legacy game. Every publisher at the same time got together and said, we're all going to publish legacy games this year, guys. Yeah, that's 2018. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) (laughs) You are absolutely right. And then there was a gap. And now apparently 19 was not legacy approved because there was one. And now it's 2020 and 21. And we have another 20 schedule or so. Yeah. So yeah, so I haven't played that many. I'm about halfway through... Pandemic Legacy with Scott. Season one? Yeah, we need to get back into it. You know that co-ops are not very high on my love meter. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's kind of okay to me. So I'm not one to really push for it. And Scott has actually asked to bring it back to the table. So that's interesting that he enjoys it that much. He had never played regular Pandemic. So I think 
that novelty also might not be lost on him the the newness of the game of pandemic itself so i think that might have something to do with it i think i have played a few more than i had realized i mean not that i had realized i didn't note it down and now going through them i have tried a few not dozens obviously there are 20 but uh, but a, a few more but my track record with them is ambivalent because as you said a lot relates to what the game or at least it used to be the case that a lot of them took a game that already existed and made it into something more legacy style Mm-hmm. So the first one, both that was published and the first one I tried was Risk Legacy. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed Risk Legacy because it was not Risk in a way. I had played Risk hundreds of times. I think out of the mass market games, it is still the one that if I have to play one, I would play that. But my brother really, really liked it. So whenever we would visit them, he and his wife would like to play that because they couldn't play it with kids they were very young and so we would end up playing risk over and over again so in 2011 we decided well why don't we try and give them this which is supposed to be very good and actually turned out to be very good it had uh, asymmetric powers and again that sense of discovery and putting stickers on the board and changing the state of the rules and of the map so every time you played you were playing risk but also almost a new game would i now try for example to lure you or other of my regular gaming group into a risk legacy campaign probably not so there the thing was it took risk and made it into a very good game i think but i don't like risk per se that much because i'm tired of it with pandemic the problem was the opposite i really don't like pandemic (laughs) i find it one of those games those cooperative games that can be certainly hard to win but not particularly hard to decide what to try to do right and so when we started it and we played it with tom and mike two of our dear gaming friends so it wasn't a problem of players we had played before other stuff and we liked it and we were getting together every week so it was also an appointment it was great but i found myself oh we have played through pandemic Oh, now there is this new thing, this new stickers, the new character, and this thing changes. Oh, and now we're playing Pandemic again. And then at the end of that game, oh, there is this choice to be made and this permanent change. And we did that five times. We won the first three. We lost the fourth. Or no, we won the fourth. We lost the fifth. And then Tom didn't want to play anymore. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. No, not because we lost, but uh, we we didn't get together anymore, and so I don't miss it. And then those were still old games that were designed on top of other games, like Clank has been recently for me. While the one we played together, The King Dilemma. So, do you consider that to be a legacy game? One hundred percent. Okay. I don't. It has a lot of campaign elements to it too. So that's why. True, but we added a lot of stuff into it. Like, oh, now you can pass and get money. Now you can try and bet on this thing. Now you can do this. And also, if that's not a legacy game, then Gloomhaven is not a legacy game, which is the most famous legacy game in existence. (laughs) Which 
I mean, I'm fine redefining it, but but you're you're putting stickers on a board for Gloomhaven. Oh, we and you're not in the King's Dilemma. I mean, you are, but I don't but know. It's it's, it's a little yeah, right. I don't know. It just feels a little different to me. Gloomhaven versus King's Dilemma. I actually find that King's Dilemma is nothing else than a legacy game because that's all you do. You go through the game, you consume it. Gloomhaven, I guess, when you're done, you can still play it. You can explore other things. For example, I sold my copy of Gloomhaven. Hmm. We got it. It was a game that is weird because I, I got rid of it and I still think it's a very, very good game. It is the game that I needed to have when I was 15. Meaning if I had had it with my teenager friends when we had a lot of time, we liked to play D&D, we were playing some board games, and if someone had given us this giant box of 95 hour and something long scenarios that you can play through and discover this world, it would have been amazing. Right now, the game was good, but A, it's not my favorite dungeon crawler. B, I don't want necessarily to play a game 120 hours in a comparatively short time. And C, it was a giant box. (laughs) So we gave it away when we had already applied some stickers. And the guy said, sure, but I can still play the next scenarios and the next scenario and all of that. And of course, he got a little bit of a discount. While King Dilemma, you could never, ever sell it midway. No. Because the the legacy nature of it is basically the only thing there is. The, the game mechanics are fine. It's just the discovery part that drives the narrative and therefore the game. I thought about it and I was like, I was like, how could you reuse King's Dilemma? So you would have to first like label all the cards that came out of a specific envelope. And then you would have to put stickers on top of the stickers. So that way you weren't writing on the stickers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, yeah. it, it, it didn't seem feasible to me. No, absolutely. And that's exactly the point. The last two that I would like to touch upon very briefly one was Charterstone okay. that we tried and we abandoned not for the same at least from my part it didn't have anything bad like I didn't have the feeling oh I'm playing a game that I don't like but at the same time it was very unmemorable to me the addition was so Charterstone is was meant to be the first Euro game that used legacy elements But the basic game is an extremely simple worker placement game Mm -hmm. where you go somewhere, you get the resource. And it has that little bit of thing like in Euphoria where if I bump you out, you save a little bit of time. Because normally you place a worker, you place a worker, you place a worker. When you have placed them all, you gather them all and that's your turn that turn. Mm -hmm. So if you bump me out, I can do something else. It doesn't cost you anything, doesn't give you any penalties just that i saved if i have three workers and you bump one of them out i basically saved a third of a turn because yep. i will have one work but the i don't know if the incremental changes were too slow because it was meant to reach people who are not familiar with euros or if it just happened that in our games it got a little repetitive so this very very simple euro game was changing, oh, there is a new building where here you can spend two bricks and get two points and an influence point rather than 
I don't know, doing that with two grain and one whatever cow. How boring. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It felt like I doesn't give me enough to of that discovery. Why don't I just play a full fledged resource management game where sure it's the same that I played last time, but it has in enough inside variability that I have a new puzzle. Why don't I play Macau? Why don't I play Tolkien? It was well done. It, the, the art was charming. The story was cute in itself, but it was still a Euro. So it's not like you midway through the game, you went and read the story and see what happened because that would be <laughs> terrible. And on top of that, Anna was frustrated, understandably so, that the few things that did change through the game sometimes change midway through the game. Like you open a crate, which means putting a new sticker, having a new card. And let's say I put down something that lets you spend bricks for something and you have spent your round or the first half of that specific game collecting oil and oil-related resources and now bricks are worth more. And... It's sure that will be true also in the next game, but this specific game has now shifted. Yeah, and that's that's something that is fine in a game like King's Dilemma or in Clank, where it's whatever can happen depends on the cards that come out of the deck. Not so much in a very controlled Euro. resource management game. Yeah, that makes sense. So that was, I think, the last one that I played, and I was curious about. The other one that was supposed to be a Euro game with legacy elements, that was The Rise of Queensdale, which was another one of those who came out that year where everyone was putting them out. <laughs> the year of legacy games, 2018. Correct. But that I, I heard it was extremely boring as Seafall had been. To the point that Seafall, that I think was predating Pandemic Legacy. So yeah, after Risk Legacy, the next big thing was Seafall, which is by Robert Davio, I think, which is a very popular game designer, Rob Davio. And so they came out with Seafall by Ironwall Games that had this gorgeous production and all of this. And everyone said, sure, there is a lot of things and a lot of cards on which to write names, but the gameplay is super, super boring. So to me, it seems like Legacy as proven itself to be stronger with games that rely on narrative rather than games that rely on mechanisms. Yeah. Which is curious because what we said is that they add mechanisms throughout the game. So it's strange that they add the mechanism after the other, but games that rely on that seem not to fare as well. I'm not sure why that is. It, it feels like the reason why, though, is because, especially like the ones that you were talking about, the Euros are very tight. They're very heavy. They're very, you have lots of planning that goes into turns for things to change, especially midway. It sounds miserable <laughs> when you've planned out a whole turn and then someone gets an advantage because they were doing something just by chance. Yeah, I also imagine that it might be because in order to have space to make significant changes a lot of times, you must leave space for that. And so the rules need to be extremely simple because if you start 
let's say you took, I don't know, a Cold Baron or Five Tribes and try, or Oleon and try to make that legacy, it would quickly become unmanageable, right? There are games that are already hard enough as it is to explain. Think of Oleon and the seven tracks and the goods and <laughs> the actions. And then you start, oh, after game one, we will add another action. After game two, we will add another thing. And so, for example, if you wanted to do it with Orlean or something like that, you would have to strip down Orlean to, okay, you can get two different people or move around. Yep. And then you had, and so you have two options, I imagine. Either you start with a game that is lighter and more basic that you want it to be, or vice versa, it quickly becomes one of those games where oh, there are so many rules, so many things. Why are we doing something this busy? So I have my, my cons. I'm going to do my cons first to end on a positive note. Okay. So I'll try to join and make something up. So cons. Uh, one of the cons that I wrote is that it tends to be a one-and-done experience. So for people who don't have don't have a lot of access to games or have a lot of you know money to devote into the hobby having a game that you play through and then basically discard is something that shies people away from things whereas $40 copy of a different game I can have for years and years and years and hundreds of plays so that that is one of the cons that I I thought of I have a con that I think is similar to this is connected is that if I'm playing a legacy game and the new player wants to join, either I throw them in the middle of the campaign, so without a progression, without a sense of the story, or I cannot do anything. I have just to say, no, you will not play this with me, ever. <laughs> While, for example, in campaign games that I like a lot, is, okay, we're in the middle of this campaign, so you would miss out on the story, you would miss up on character development. But if you want, we can start another one with you. So we have this campaign that I'm playing... I know myself, Anna, and Nathan, and this other campaign that I'm playing with myself, Nathan, and Joe. And they both can coexist, while, as you said, that's not only one and done, but also one. There is no possibility for a parallel. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, because like in King's Dilemma, it said that there was an option of bringing someone in, but it didn't say about giving them any resources or anything, or any points, which was weird to me. First of all, that was a serious oversight, I think, because if you enter midway through the campaign, you cannot do anything. But even if it were, think if if someone got in and goes, oh, this card says that there is this person that is doing this thing, and go, okay, let me explain you that. So we are basically backtracking <laughs> all of the game, and they don't feel like that slow discovery. Sure, I think they meant... If the one time you got together and learned it, a player was missing, or if someone is missing game 12 is not a big deal. But I don't think you could have someone come in game 8 and and do be a, a real participant of the campaign. Yeah, yeah. So you have more negatives? One more. Okay. And that is the consequences of actions are felt in future games, which I don't really particularly care for for example pandemic legacy if you completely ignore a city and it gets destroyed in the future it's destroyed it's harder to get there it's harder to to fix crises 
that arise when you're trying to play the game. And it's like you're almost at a disadvantage going forward. Similarly, in King's Dilemma, if we made a decision and it was poor and it caused conflict or something in some territory, we had to add things in like that. So it was very, it's unforgiving in the sense that if you, if you like make a mistake or if you do something poorly, then you can definitely feel the effects of those in future games. Mm -hmm. However, that ties into one of my pros, which is that your choices are impactful on the gameplay. Sure. I can see that. So that's kind of cool and interesting. So I guess I just like the positive (laughs) impacts on gameplay, not the negative impacts. It's cool to play through a legacy game and and see the changes that you're making, that choices that you made. I felt like, especially in King's Dilemma, that was very prevalent, that the choices that you're making were really shaping the gameplay, really shaping the story, the narrative, shaping future games. So if that sounds interesting to you, I highly recommend to try a legacy game if you've never tried one before. Yeah, for me, my my first positive, I think, is that when they are well done, and it's almost the opposite of what you were saying, but when they are well done, they make you care about the game that you are playing, even if there are things that will reverberate in following games. And I think that was a little bit of the problem with King's Dilemma compared to others that I tried, that sometimes we felt like, sure, I have done well in this game, but you are so ahead on this and so ahead on that. So I think that the legacy games that I really appreciate are the ones where even if I know that I'm doing horrible in the overall campaign, I can still have a lot to deal with in this game. And that's why you like Clank, right? Yes, because Clank, for example, I lost the campaign and I think I won three out of 12 games we we played or 11. But every game was tense. Every game was a Clank game in its own essence. And so I really cared about each of those, even after it became clear that it was very unlikely I would win the overall campaign, although it surprised me because there were certain scoring categories that brought me way closer. I think in the end, it, I won by one. I lost by one macro point, not by one point in a game. Uh, one of the things that you counted by one. So it could have gone differently. And I didn't know that. But despite not knowing that, thinking midway through the campaign, oh, I just lost the campaign. I still enjoyed every game because it was not predicated only on the final campaign. And then the last thing that I have is that it's a very unique gaming experience. If you've never played it before, a a legacy-type game, it's just something so unique and so different. It's unlike anything that you will have played before if you've only played, you know, standard Euros or you've only played co-ops or what what have you. This is a completely different genre. It's a completely different feeling knowing that the game itself is important, but also the the whole game is important. So it's very, very different. And I think that everyone should should try a legacy game. 
because they're so cool. I think that what makes them so cool indeed is that you can experiment more. Part of it is connected to the fact that the game will be done. And so that destroying a city in Legacy or in a pandemic or making an area of the board worth twice as much in a risk game is not going into, oh, this is our balanced mass-produced game that we need to make work for everyone. It will be something <laughs> that they can struggle with. And sure, that thing might be unbalanced, but you understand why it's unbalanced. Everyone is very well aware that that's unbalanced and maybe it will be unbalanced only for a couple of games because then something else happens. Yeah. Which is why I think, and that's where I, I think that's the best thing for me in legacy games that do work. That's why I think that games that are not such a tight resource management, card management, action placement kind of games, that games that are a little more on the experiential side can really benefit from the legacy because adding a lot of situational rules it's very fun in a game like that. It's nice to know, oh, now every time we have to deal with food, this happens, or, oh, now there are volcanoes? And that works much better in a game that to start with as a very quick and easy baseline. And that's why I think Clank Legacy worked so well for me, because they were introducing... Now there is this other effect that can be on on cards, and some of those had been introduced in legacy exp- in uh, Clank expansions before. It's only that here they came out through game by game, and so your world is, was evolving. But for me, what made Legacy, which is Legacy Clank, which is a little counterintuitive compared to what we have said so far, but it goes back to your first negative. What really made me very very happy with Clank Legacy is that I now have a copy that not only I feel confident playing with Anna, who played the campaign with me, but that I would have no question whatsoever in taking it out and having you play my copy of Clank Legacy. Unless you were specifically interested in Clank Legacy and therefore you wanted to preserve the exploration for you, but there is nothing inferior in the end product of Clank Legacy compared to what regular Clank is. Actually, I think it's better. Actually, I think it has a few more interesting things. And so I don't feel sure I could have had Clank and maybe an expansion for probably $60 and Clank Legacy I got for $70. But it has a ton of content. And so I got to experience all of the story and all of the modification, all of the craziness of the Legacy game. And somehow they made it that now it's a very well reason very work well working clank board i think the reason for that was that there was some sticking going on putting stickers on the board but it was well thought out they knew already where things would have appeared and so sure you can have one kind of square on my board that is not on yours but it's balanced what can be where and second that most of the modification constantly happened through cards so you had cards that told you go here and do that and then when you're done that card is destroyed but it's not the board that is modified and so the story was happening on the board and so now the board is perfectly designed to be a, a clank board with more interesting things but it still works which probably means that i like legacy games that integrate with the future i'm probably not comfortable with the idea of throwing away a game
Yeah, I will not take you up on your offer because Scott keeps asking me to get him Clank Legacy. I strongly suggest it, and I I think it's an amazing experience. It's not co-op, so you will like that. Aha! (laughs) And you you know Clank. It's a great game in itself. And as I probably mentioned before, even if someone already owns Clank, I would say go out and buy it. It's a great experience. You will end up with a better copy because, for example, it integrates parts from expansions or things that are similar to things found in expansions, but in a cohesive, not only one box, but it's a giant box, but but also in a cohesive, you have one rule book and one set of cards and all of that. So it actually makes for, in the end, a better collection than a Clank plus expansions. And on top of that, you have between 10 and 12, I don't remember, a sizable number, but not too crazy high of games that you play through. And it's it's great. Awesome. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Yes, it has been a long episode. Yes. <laughs> which we will modify the rules not to make it longer next time. So we will not do a legacy thing here. We'll try not to make long, long episode. No stickers have been applied to this podcast. Oh, I don't get a gold star sticker? No, no. (laughs) I get it for doing my homework of Teotihuacan. Well, when I was way too old to be a junior ranger, so when I first came to the U.S. on vacation, I was 25. And so when we got to the national parks, we realized that if you were a freaking kid, you could get the junior ranger passport and apply stickers and when you completed it you got a junior ranger sticker star and so i made myself one so i will make myself a sticker for legacy legacy game player okay sounds good that's how i roll (laughs) all right well that brings us to the end of our episode thank you so much for listening if you are interested please subscribe like share Anywhere that you find this, also, we are available on Instagram, on Facebook, and email, all at uh, BoardGameGambit. The email would be BoardGameGambit at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. As always, um, I've been Nathan. I'm Jackie, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.